A couple of weeks ago, NCPR put out a survey about health care in the North Country. It was the first step in a series that we're planning for this fall. We asked about your health care experiences, concerns, and questions. Amy Feierisel is in this morning to break down your answers. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Monica. I'm so glad to be here. Well, let's dive right in. About 330 people took our survey either online through a texting club or on Instagram. What were the results? Well, the first question we asked was, what healthcare topic are you most interested in? And there were six choices, addiction, mental health, prison healthcare, elder care, and the regionalization of healthcare. And we definitely had a front runner. Nearly 40% of people chose the regionalization of healthcare. Yeah, regionalization of healthcare. So what do we mean by that? So the full topic name was regionalization of healthcare and consolidation of services. And what we were referring to there are things like North Country hospitals being taken over by larger city conglomerates. Think Plattsburgh being operated by UVM in Burlington, the St. Lawrence Health System merging with Rochester Regional Health. It's also consolidation with certain wards in hospitals closing, like the maternity wards in Malone and Messina. And we recently found out that the Lake Placid ER is closing and sending patients to Saranac Lake. So what did people say in the survey about how regionalization and consolidation affects their lives? The first was waiting. And Susan Novak is kind of the poster child for the waiting game that so many people described. Novak is 66. She lives in Raymondville outside Messina. Last December, she noticed a strange feeling in her heart, and she described it as a sort of offbeat pumping. Her primary doctor also thought it was an issue and referred her to a cardiologist. I had hoped I would get in quickly, but the first appointment was at the end of March. And just before I was due to go in, I received a call saying that they needed to reschedule the appointment. And it was, again, another couple months out. And when that one came along, they called again and they were going to reschedule. So this happened two more times. And Novak says her current first appointment is scheduled for the end of August. Well, that's really scary. And that'll be nine months after she first noticed this irregular heartbeat. Yeah, and and she says she has very little faith that, you know, this upcoming appointment will happen. And those long wait times or just not having a specialist in the area, that leads many people to traveling for care. That was another big, big issue. Of course, that's no secret in the North Country. Lots of people travel for care to Syracuse, Burlington, Albany. Feeling healthy can mean the difference between a good day and a bad day or a month or years. So healthcare is at the center of our lives, economy, and society. All this month, NCPR's news team is telling stories about the state of healthcare in the rural North Country, the pain when it doesn't work, and the joy and relief when it does. We'll be talking about consolidation of healthcare across the region, about the struggle to pay the bills, about nursing shortages and the mental health crisis, and solutions that healthcare professionals are making happen despite limited resources. In the part of the world we live in, a lot of healthcare is for seniors. Roughly a quarter of the North Country's residents are over the age of 65. That's about twice the state average. One of the big barriers to quality health care for older adults is education, especially around navigating insurance. Amy Fyresel reports. 
On a sunny weekday afternoon, about a half dozen people filed into the Dubinsky Recreation Center in Ogdensburg. They're here for Medicare 101. <laughs> Just let me know if you can't hear me. So my name is Cindy Ayer. I work at the Office for the Aging for St. Lawrence County. Ayer runs these sessions all over the county. She passes out a paper packet, and at first, it's pretty simple. At 65, you get Medicare A and B. Okay, and this is what your Medicare card looks like. That's what your A and B would be on. That's what the government is providing. Then it starts to get complicated. You need to choose between a Medigap supplement or an Advantage plan. There are dozens of choices. Air passes out more handouts. There's plan D and C and F. There are 19 different drug plans. The questions start to come fast and furious. United Healthcare AARP, what was the other one you said? Excellus. As baby boomers continue to age into Medicare, AIR is going to hold a lot more of these sessions. By 2030, there will be about 70 million Americans older than 65, about double the number there were in 2010. More seniors means a greater need for health care services, but also for information. Medicare is notoriously difficult to navigate. That's why Ogdensburg native Leon Montroy came here today. Because you need a PhD in trying to understand it? Montroy and his wife are both 64. When his wife retires next year, they'll get kicked off her work insurance. He can't believe how complicated Medicare is. But I worked in healthcare, so I understand a lot of the insurance language. I don't know how some older people do it. It's confusing. But these are also really important decisions with big consequences, like quality of care and medical bankruptcy. Air says you need to compare prescription drug prices on different plans. Make sure your doctors are in network. It's easy to make the wrong decision, says Montroy. My wife's parents get confused. But they thought they, they were paying too much for a Medigap plan, and so they went to WellCare. Montroy says his in-laws recently switched to a free monthly plan, thinking they'd save money. But now they're getting all these bills. Panicked switching is a big issue, says Air. She says older adults are bombarded with mailers and TV ads that all advertise the perfect plan. Air says that doesn't exist. She stressed this several times. If you're happy with your current coverage, you do not have to do anything. This is what Air does. Help folks navigate the maze. Help people use the computer. But Air is the only Medicare counselor in St. Lawrence County. She serves 26,000 adults. That'll be 29,000 in three years. Which is a really rapid increase for certainly a rural, impoverished county. That's Andrea Montgomery, the director of St. Lawrence County's Office of the Aging. I asked if they're ready for the so-called silver tsunami. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say the answer to that is we're not ready. Um, at the federal... Probably hundreds and... I don't know, thousands of the, a I mean, lot. If her open heart surgery was $190,000, you can imagine how much this one's going to be. When I ask how they're going to afford it, it's the first time I've seen Angie look overwhelmed. For this trip, I mean, we're just, like I said, we're having this fundraiser, this benefit tonight, um, hoping to raise whatever we can and then use the, and everything will go towards the bills. While she's playing over by the DJ booth, Olivia sees a friend across the room. She starts running towards them to say hi. Her dad, Jeremy, notices immediately, and he stops her. He says it's not safe for her to exert herself physically. One of her airways um, 
isn't the right size. It's half the size it should be. So her body's expending so much energy to try to breathe, and it occasionally will cause her to be phys- very, very physically exhausted. Like the, there's some times where you, she'll just pass out to, from being so uh, tired. And when we, try, when we try to wake her up after like a couple hours, like just like a usual nap, she won't wake up. She can't run around like her four siblings, and she doesn't get to play outside at all if it's too hot or too cold. So she can't really make snowmen or have snowball fights. And it's incredibly difficult to be able to tell her that because she cries a lot about it when it happens. Olivia says it's hard for her. For once, I just want to run fast, and for once, I just want to try to be normal. She says she's anxious about her trip to the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati this month. I feel nervous about, like, like, sometimes I think surgeries or doctor things won't work. She also says she's never been to Ohio and she doesn't like needles. But she knows what the surgery could mean for her life. That I can run more, I don't have to take inhalers and machines, and I don't have to stay behind on activities. Olivia's family, friends, and neighbors are doing whatever they can to help her get the care she needs. Her old kindergarten teacher donated about 50 pounds of pasta. Her mom started a GoFundMe page. Her mom's manager at Kohl's reworked the store schedule so lots of co-workers could help set up. And two co-workers' husbands are serving spaghetti, meatballs, and red sauce into styrofoam containers. Kitty Young is one of Angie's co-workers at Kohl's. She brought an extra helium tank she had left over from a birthday party. We're just making it a little, a little more festive and blowing up balloons for the tables, for centerpieces, and her colors are pink and red, so we're just trying to make sure that we have everything look very festive and lighthearted. Young was one of the main organizers of this fundraiser. They had their planning meetings and gathered supplies at her house. She'd never helped organize a health care benefit before, but she says she would have done anything for this family. So, okay, I'm get emotional. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, sorry. I knew I was going to do this today. Um, what won my heart? I'm, what won my heart over with Olivia was um, Angie was having a birthday party for one of the kids one day, and I had my plate. Olivia walks over and she whispers something to me. I couldn't tell what she was saying. And she whispered it again. Still didn't get it. And she said, can I take your plate for you? So here's this little doll, you know, and she, so I will do anything for that family. They're just wonderful. Ultimately, the fundraiser raised $6,394. That'll cover about six months of groceries for Olivia's family, but it's barely a dent in what her surgery will cost. So the fundraisers will have to continue. Lucy Grindon, North Country Public Radio, Evans Mills. Different. I mean, what are the... Imagine for us a different world of a healthcare system designed for a rural area like the North Country. Oh, I wish that I could just design this. <laughs> That's a tough question that you're asking me to do. Um, I think what would be great is if we could loosen up these regulations in such a way that allows rural areas to maximize the use of the assets that they have. So we've got a lot of really cool things about rural spaces. Like we are innovators, right? We do innovation all the time in our regular lives because environmental pressures and societal pressures make us do things differently. And so if we were able to innovate and if we were able to do things in a way that uses our available resources, 
then I think that we could produce better results. For example, in Pennsylvania recently, they changed the way that they pay hospitals, rural hospitals. Certain hospitals were allowed to get global budgets, meaning they got a certain amount of money per year, regardless of how many patients that they saw. So they weren't getting paid for each person who came through the door, who had procedures or had inpatient stays. They got a chunk of money and they got to spend it the way that they felt was appropriate for their region. I think that that would be cool, right? Like to be able to to take a, a pot of money that is meant to serve your population and to do it in a way that works for your population. We're doing this series on healthcare in the North Country. And, you know, one of the issues that really comes up again and again and again is not enough, really, that there's not enough patients, like you already said, that there's not enough resources, that there's um, not enough clinics. Um, and you've written that that rural healthcare systems are too often defined as a system of deficit, of lack. You know, why do you see that as a problem? I mean, isn't it just the reality that we have fewer people and fewer resources? It is the reality. But when we become fixated on it, when we become fixated on this idea of rural not having as much, not having enough, we stop thinking about the ways that we could use what we do have. And I feel like we should be building up our systems and we should be appreciating all of the great things that exist in rural spaces and using those to make our health better. Let's talk about... About 20 people are gathered round table style in the Plattsburgh Hampton Inns conference room. They're here for a town hall hosted by the New York State Nurses Association. That's the union that represents a lot of the North Country's hospital nurses. Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Vicki, and I have lived my entire life in the North Country. That's Vicki Davis-Corson, a nurse and one of the union leaders at Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital, or CVPH, in Plattsburgh. I'm here to welcome you to our town hall about access to care in the North Country. Davis-Corson and others in the union say there's a crisis in healthcare staffing and basic services, a decline in maternity, intensive care, and pediatric beds. Researcher Savon Rosenthal ties those issues to a phenomenon that swept across the U.S. healthcare system. So you can see that almost every hospital consolidated consolidated into a larger health system. Um, and consolidation, regionalization, partnership. It goes by different names depending on who's talking about it. But the basic premise is that a smaller, often rural, hospital becomes part of a larger city-based network that shares resources with its members. CVPH is one of the North Country's biggest hospitals. It's also one of three in northern New York that joined the University of Vermont Health Network over the last 10 years, along with the ones in Elizabethtown and Malone. Officials say before the network formed, Burlington's hospital and CVPH didn't have the greatest relationship. Dr. John Brumstead, the network's first leader who retired last December, says it was competitive and contentious. It was sort of the overlap between University of Vermont Medical Center, then called Fletcher Allen Healthcare, as uh, an academic medical center and CVPH being one of the largest hospitals in the North Country, trying to provide all the services that they could. But Brumstead says CVPH simply didn't have the volume of patients to maintain certain specialties on this side of the lake, like open-heart surgery. He says low patient volumes make it hard for smaller rural hospitals to offer such services in an affordable, high-quality way. And he says it's virtually impossible to run these facilities without extra government support. And so more and more across the country... Uh, systems are developing, and particularly in rural areas, hospitals are either closing or cutting way back on services, or they're becoming part of 
systems of care like the UVM Health Network. Brumstead says attitudes about coming together were mixed, but the boards at CVPH and other hospitals understood the potential that forming a network had for preserving and improving access to care. And he says things moved pretty quickly. Meetings and negotiations started in early 2012, and CVPH joined the network in January 2013. Smaller hospitals have a tough time recruiting doctors and nurses, and they often don't have the buying power for the equipment and other cutting-edge technologies needed in today's healthcare landscape. Michelle LeBeau is CVPH's president. She says being part of the network has helped the hospital do things, like acquire personal protective equipment for staff during COVID and fill in gaps in staff coverage. What I'm appreciative of and grateful for is that we actually have a partner to call to say, I've only got coverage for three days. What can you do to support me? But some employees aren't so satisfied. Chris Swise is a nurse who's worked at CVPH for more than 20 years. He says he noticed smaller changes when the hospital first joined the network. But over the last few years, he says those have given way to big changes, like switching the medical record system and the loss of more and more services. Swise also says it seems like CVPH is losing its autonomy. One of our our big slogans, you know, our big things that we used to run by was, um, you know, quality health care close to home. And, you know, I I really felt that we really strived here at CVPH and at Plattsburgh to do that. Now, he says it seems like they just tell patients to go elsewhere for their care. Kate Trombley is a Plattsburgh resident who's very familiar with traveling for health care. Her two youngest children, Rory and Reed, are, as she says, medically complex. Between the two of them, they have all sorts of conditions, like club foot, heart defects, and a skull condition. Rory was also recently diagnosed with autism. The list of specialists that my children see is phenomenal. (laughs) It's sad. Um, It's frustrating. We've traveled to Albany. We traveled to Montreal. We've traveled to Dartmouth. We've traveled um, to Boston Children's. And they regularly travel back and forth across the lake to the UVM Medical Center's pediatric department. Trumbly says she tends to avoid CVPH, even for emergency care. That's partially because of negative experiences she says she's had there, but also because the hospital doesn't have a pediatric unit and the specialists her children need. It's very difficult to have medically complex children. And I know I'm not the only one in this community that feels this way and feels very strongly about it to have medically complex children and not have what you need right here in case of emergency or just basic care. LeBeau says she appreciates that people have to travel for care and as a mother of five has felt the gap in coverage with her own family. She says CVPH has pediatricians for maternity and the emergency room, but she says there simply aren't enough patients to attract pediatric specialists like the ones Trombley's children see. They want to see large volumes and so we leverage our friends across the lake where they're They see large volumes from across northern New York and then from across Vermont. Some nurses see how that makes sense. Shane Camp is a traveling nurse who's worked on and off in CVPH's emergency department over the last few years. He says consolidating can help a hospital's finances, and there are some perks to being part of a network, like quicker transfers of patients to higher levels of care. But he personally thinks that regionalization can hurt local patients when valuable resources move out of town. The medical professional in me says, you know, If somebody comes to CVPH for chest pain and it turns out that they need an open, you know, heart bypass, you know, they should be able to have it at CVPH. The jury's out on how the creation of these networks affects quality of care. Allie Coates is a Ph.D. candidate whose research focuses on small rural hospitals who become part of larger health systems. She says there's not a lot of research on the impacts and the research that does exist is mixed. Coates says rural hospitals have faced existential financial threats for years and are closing at alarming rates. 
those that remain have pared back services or changed their federal reimbursement models. But I think in a lot of cases, these affiliations happen because people feel like the, the administrators feel like there isn't a choice. They want to serve their communities and they can do it with a little help. Michelle LeBeau, CVPH's president, says she constantly has to ask herself where the hospital would be without the UVM Health Network. She says it'd probably be like one of those facilities Coates was talking about. Folks depend on us. Um, the community, the region depends on us. Um, and I think if it wasn't for the network and the ability to be able to connect together, we'd have to be really asking ourselves, like, how big can we be and what can we do? LeBeau says that some of the next steps in the collaboration are still works in progress. Things like doctor and nurse recruitment and making sure everyone has the resources they need for patients. Back at the union presentation, Chris Wise, the longtime CVPH nurse, says the network has to make those things work. You know, they need to do better in getting us the care that we need so that we can get people to come into the North Country who want to stay here, who want to take root, who want to raise their families up here like we do because we love this area and we care for it. And healthcare is a, a big driver for getting people to come in here. Swise says any big change comes with growing pains, and he's frustrated right now. But he says he's hopeful things will settle down and that CVPH will get the doctors, nurses, and resources it needs to care for its patients. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio, Plattsburgh. Her father, who has since died, was in and out of emergency rooms. He had prostate cancer and severe arthritis and recurring gout, and eventually he couldn't walk. Peterson says they were keeping up with his regular doctors, but he was in a lot of pain. His home health aides would tell Peterson to take her father to the ER, but when she did, they'd send him right back home. I wish they had taken him seriously and not just said, oh, this is, you know, this old geezer. Peterson says those experiences left her feeling anxious, frustrated, and resentful. I had one doctor in one of the emergency rooms say to me, I know why you're here and you're not going to get away with it, essentially. She thought I was bringing my father to dump him off and like make somebody else take care of him. I was trying to get him help. For our healthcare series, hundreds of people answered our survey about what is and isn't working in the North Country. Many of them told us about their experiences and frustrations in emergency rooms. But what is it about rural emergency rooms that makes getting the right care so difficult? It starts with people coming in too late. Victoria Koskanoya is a rural emergency doctor based in Michigan, and she's the chair of the rural section of the American College of Emergency Physicians. She says not having enough primary care doctors in rural areas contributes to who comes into the ER. According to the Economic Research Service at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there are about five primary care doctors for every 10,000 people in rural areas. In urban areas, it's eight. Kaskanoya says that's a problem because when people can't get regular care for chronic conditions that could be managed, they end up coming into the ER with a bigger problem. So if somebody has asthma or diabetes or high cholesterol or high blood pressure, they might not be able to get in to see a doctor to have that managed. So then they show up when they're having their diabetic ketoacidosis or when they're having their stroke because their condition wasn't managed well. On top of that, rural people are less likely to be able to afford medical care when they can get it. According to the Commonwealth Fund, an independent private foundation that supports health research. If you live in the North Country, you could be at least an hour's drive from the closest hospital. There are only a handful of hospitals in the entire Adirondack Park. Jonathan Maskin lives in Indian Lake, a really small town deep in the Adirondacks. 
He says that lack of emergency care in the park is really scary. It's Russian roulette, to be honest with you. You know, if you're uh, if you're really in need of something urgently, uh, you're in trouble. Maskin is in his late 60s. He drives an hour and 40 minutes to see a specialist at the hospital in Albany. But for basic checkups, Maskin says he's lucky. There's a health center right in Indian Lake. It's run by Hudson Headwaters Health Network. Where Hudson Headwaters comes in to a point is provides good primary care, which is preventative health care services, which is really, really important. Hudson Headwaters is not a hospital system. It's a network of small clinics in seven North Country counties. The aim is to provide primary care in lower-income places that are also considered medically underserved. Actually, Hudson Headwaters is required to do that. That's because it's what's known as a federally qualified health center, or FQHC. It's a federal designation that you have to meet some pretty specific requirements around geography, needs assessments. That's Kevin Gallagher. He's a family doc for Hudson Headwaters in Warrensburg and Glens Falls. One key requirement of an FQHC is that they always have to accept new patients, regardless of insurance. We're essentially a primary care safety net provider. We're, we're supposed to be available to anyone who needs care and be able to provide that fairly and equitably in any community. It's able to do that with significant help from the federal government. At an FQHC like Hudson Headwaters, the government insures a set reimbursement rate, regardless of what an insurance company offers. So if a visit costs $150 and an insurance company only pays 80 the government makes up for the difference. The whole idea behind Hudson Headwaters began in the mid-1970s. A few docs, including its founder, John Ruggie, wanted to provide care in communities where there was no other option. But by the late 70s, it was clear that these rural independent health centers were losing money fast. Here's Ruggie in a video from Hudson Headwaters' website. And losses that were becoming unsustainable on the hospital reimbursement had been constrained during this time. So I had a letter in my drawer indicating we were closing the Chester Health Center. It was at that point, Ruggie says, that they applied to become a federally qualified health center. Hudson Headwaters started in Chestertown in Warren County. Today, there are 22 health centers around the region, from up in Champlain, over to Tupper Lake, and down to Whitehall. And the network is growing. So this is all the new space. So we added seven additional rooms here. So and they're good-sized rooms. Melissa Gooley is giving a tour around the Hudson Headwaters Health Center in Saranac Lake. The facility opened in 2020, and this fall, it's doubled in size. Again, the idea is to provide primary care that's preventative. And Gooley says this facility is set up to do a lot. You have a little lesion that you want removed to see if, you know, it's cancerous or you're worried. Um, we have providers that do that here. Um, we do pap smears here. We... Uh, we do joint injections, a lot of those things. Being a federally qualified health center opens Hudson Headwaters up to a lot of federal grants. And its growth over the years has allowed the network to hire a team focused largely on that whole aspect of the business. That sets it apart from smaller, private, independent doctor's offices around the region. But it doesn't solve the staffing crisis that plagues rural places like the North Country. State Assemblyman Billy Jones, who represents Franklin, Clinton, and parts of Essex County, was on the recent tour in Saranac Lake. I think the number one issue when it comes to 
uh, health care here in the area from what I have been hearing in the last three, four probably even longer than that, six, seven, eight years, is how do we get providers here and how do we retain those providers? This is another aspect where the federal designation is essential for Hudson Headwaters. Providers who work at an FQHC qualify to have their student loans repaid over time. The government also offers malpractice insurance to all of its providers. While that doesn't solve all of its staffing problems, Dr. Patricia Monroe says the stability of Hudson Headwaters gives the network a leg up. It's pretty obvious that probably Hudson Headwaters is a sustainable practice. So that allows you to recruit more. And if you recruit them, well, then obviously you feel more comfortable then and you can recruit more. So it feeds on itself. Meanwhile, Hudson Headwaters is trying to reach even more remote places by sending a mobile clinic. Most Americans want to spend their old age at home. Families, healthcare workers, and the government agree it's best for elderly people to age in place and avoid institutional care as long as possible. There's nowhere near enough in-home care aides to take care of all the seniors who need it. Yesterday, we heard a story on what in-home care looks like when it's working. Find that and all our health care coverage at ncpr.org. Today, we see what happens when families who need in-home care don't get it. Monica Sandresky has our story. Kate Glenn squats before a makeshift altar in her living room in Saranac Lake. So she, uh, she kind of exists here. There's a box of ashes, a bunch of dried lavender, and a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. When I miss her, I spray it and it smells like her. It's nice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Glenn recalls the day in 2020 she knew something was wrong with her mom. She was in town for Thanksgiving and had grabbed a towel to rinse off. She was very upset with the water falling down on her. She was, like, scared to get into the shower. And I was like, okay, well, we'll take a bath. Her mom was 72, and she knew she had Alzheimer's, but today was different. She got into the tub and coaxed her mom in with her. And then I washed her hair. It's the first time in my life I'd ever washed my mother's hair or another person's hair. And it was lovely because she really enjoyed it. And, you know, it felt good to take care of my mom, you know. Uh, But she also, like, couldn't really do it on her own. What Glenn didn't fully realize then was that she was about to become her mom's full-time caregiver. She needed help, so she called a couple of agencies in town to find a home health aide. Nothing, just wait lists. Her mom's care was up to her. My landlord was really lovely. They fixed up a room for me in the back of the garage so that, you know, I had a room of my own and she could have the bedroom in the house, in the main house. For seven months, each morning, Glenn poured her mom's coffee and raisin bran and got her dressed. Alzheimer's is strange. You know, some days you're present, some moments you're present, and sometimes you're not. And some days she could put her pants on and some days she couldn't. She called those days the I need help days. Then Glenn taught a few hours at a time at Paul Smith's. She knew her mom was okay if she texted her back. She paid a colleague to take her mom to Nori's and go for walks. These are all things a professional home health aide should do. Then one evening, her mom started screaming inconsolably, on the floor writhing and talking to people who weren't there. Glenn called 911. But I remember feeling sort of a sense of relief at the emergency room because, like, I had somebody else to help me understand what was happening with her in that moment. It was a urinary tract infection. UTIs can trigger delirium for people with Alzheimer's. 
The months of care were overwhelming her. Glenn couldn't handle it anymore. Her experience is a common one, says Andrea Montgomery. She's the director of the St. Lawrence County Office for the Aging. It's, it's absolutely frustrating um, to all of us in the field that every day we're having to deliver that bad news. Oh, I'm sorry, that service doesn't exist for you. Um, and knowing that you may be uh, leaving someone in a situation um, that isn't necessarily safe for them. Nationwide, hundreds of thousands of older Americans are on wait lists for caregivers. But the thing is, the length of those wait lists isn't indicative of the severity of the problem. Take St. Lawrence County, for example. Montgomery's Office for the Aging has a program to pay for in-home care for people who don't qualify for Medicaid and can't afford it on their own. They serve about 60 seniors. There's about that many people on the wait list. But the county has 15,000 people over age 70, most of whom would benefit from some kind of in-home care, she says. They'd need to hire thousands of aides willing to work for essentially minimum wage to meet the need. Isaac jabola Careless is a research analyst at the CUNY School for Labor and Urban Studies. He says the numbers do not add up. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a broken system and one that needs an overhaul, and it needs an overhaul not just at the state level, but at the federal level as well. Actually, there's photos of her everywhere now, I'm realizing. After months of being the primary caregiver for her mom, Kate Glenn moved her into an assisted living facility. She knew what was happening. Like, we had a conversation about it. Uh, she was very emotional, but she also... I think it was probably one of the last things she could do for me was just to put on a brave face and go into the facility. And I think she knew, you know, that she would probably not be coming out of that facility. Uh, but, um, yeah, I have a lovely video of her, like, waving goodbye to me from her room. You know, when we dropped her off, it felt like a good experience. Glenn went to visit, and she made the most of the time with her mom. They got chocolate ice cream cones, painted their nails bright red, and listened to Tina Turner... But her mom's Alzheimer's was progressing. She was moved into a memory care unit. Glenn says it was overcrowded and understaffed. Her teeth got bad. It wasn't clear if she was eating and she was overmedicated. Glenn feels like she watched her mom deteriorate. I would have happily paid somebody $4,000 a month to keep her at home, you know, and that would have been much better spent money, her money, much better spent. It would have lasted a lot longer than paying an assisted living facility to poorly care for her, frankly. Glenn says she witnessed staff turnover, cleaned up used adult diapers and rotting food from under her mom's bed. I I think sometimes I spend more time frustrated navigating a system than really mourning the loss of my mother who was right in front of me. You know, like it kind of took away some of my time with her because it became about how do I navigate this system so that she can have a good death eventually, right? Which is like where this was all going one day. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was hard, and it really shouldn't be that hard. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard. Her mom's delusions became constant. The staff transferred her to the hospital in Plattsburgh, which can happen with challenging patients. She died a month later. Researcher Jabola Careless says the underlying issue to having enough caregivers for all the seniors who need them 
is how caregivers are paid. Most in-home care is funded through Medicaid. The Medicaid budget is set each year with money from a general pool that's also paying for education and housing and other competing budget priorities. So it's subject to special interests and politicking from lawmakers. And that is just an unsustainable situation for funding home care services in this country. Many elected leaders recognize that the scale of the problem is too vast for states to manage alone. New York already spends about $4 billion in Medicaid money on home health aides each year. The uh, subcommittee on health of the Senate Finance Committee will come to order. This fall, Democratic Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland convened a bipartisan hearing advocating for seniors to age in place. But the number one challenge, in my view, is the failure of our nation to have a coordinated long-term care strategy. We don't. And because of the lack of a coordinated policy, seniors often end up in a more costly environment, in a less desirable environment, and I would suggest a more dangerous environment for their long-term health. Medicaid was never designed to be a long-term home care services program, says researcher Jabola Careless. It's an anti-poverty program. But in the absence of any coordinated home care insurance program, what you get is Medicaid struggling to adapt to the increasing need for in-home elder care. Montgomery, at the Office for the Aging, is impatient. You know, we've been expecting this. This isn't news. Our baby boomers, um, you know, we've known for years what's going to happen, and they haven't put the infrastructure in place. And that's at a federal and state level. And it's just mind-boggling. In 2021, there was widespread anticipation when President Biden tried to infuse $400 billion for caregivers in the big infrastructure bill. Republicans ultimately shot it down. Researcher Jabola Careless says sporadic influxes of money like that aren't a sustainable way to fund in-home care for the long term anyway. He suggests a model like Medicare, which is funded consistently through tax contributions. And that is the type of model that we need to move toward for home care if we want to provide access to home care at a much larger scale that anyone can access regardless of their income level and if we want to be able to fund a workforce that provides home care in a way that actually attracts and retains workers. Back in Saranac Lake, Kate Glenn says when her mom was dying in the hospital, she wasn't sure what a good death looked like. That morning, I, uh, I went to a local farm over in Plattsburgh and uh, I picked 200 um, sunflowers and put them in her room along with bunches of dried lavender. And uh, yeah, I just felt like where you die should be kind of a beautiful place, you know. She put on Tina Turner and handed out pastries for the nurses and thanked them because she knew they had done the best they could. I do feel like I failed her a lot, but that's a, a common feeling, I think, amongst caregivers is that you're not doing enough because the truth is you can't do enough. And it's not true, <laughs> but we often feel like guilty, right? That we just can do more. Glenn says the trauma she and her mom experienced wasn't just from the disease, but from a broken healthcare system struggling under the weight of too much pressure. There's one more thing. 
Glenn is quick to point out that she and her mom had the money, know-how, and time to navigate this system and to do the caregiving herself. But the North Country is poor. Every service provider I talk to has story after story of clients with inadequate support who sit in their own stool for days because they can't get up, or who don't eat because they can't walk to the kitchen, or who fall and lay on the floor for three days because no one's checking on them. Those are the people, Glenn says, who are really falling through the cracks. Monica Sandreski, North Country Public Radio.